emails a day, tips, everything. WAGP Buford. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Hey, we welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions as they've been studying Scripture. Sometimes there's a question they have as to the meaning or application of a text, or they're looking for biblical counsel as it relates to their family, their church, their personal ministry. So if we can be of help for the next hour, we will be here. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, locally, it's 843 843- 525-1859. The South Carolina 843 Exchange, again, is 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at net. All right, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, Pastor, we uh, have Lou from Buford asking, what is your opinion of the Bereshit prophecy? He writes, recently I viewed this on YouTube and was fascinated. The first words of the Bible, the beginning, hold the entire plan of God from beginning to end. Using Hebrew lettering of phonetic, pictograph, and numerical, it points to the end from the very beginning. They trace back to the, uh, the end of Jesus' Jesus's ministry, three and a, 33 and a half years at his death, and trace it back 4,000 years to come, uh, to come up with 3,970 as to when Adam sinned in the garden and used that point to show the accuracy of God's plan all the way to the beginning of the millennial thousand years. Have you heard of it? And if so, what is your understanding as to the accuracy and validity of this recent discovery? Well, it's been around for actually several years. It's just packaged in different ways. Uh, sometimes it's called the Jesus and Genesis 1-1 theory. Uh, and I've been asked a lot about it lately. And so when I was making a trip up to Charleston, I went ahead and listened to the a website that is most uh, heavily promoting it. There's been a lot of people who've promoted it, and of course, many claim it was their original insight that God gave them. But the Bereshit prophecy, as it's popularly called, takes the first word of the Bible. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and Bereshit bara Elohim. Bereshit is the Hebrew word that means in the beginning. And they say in this singular word, the first word of the Bible, there's a secret message all about, you know, Christ. And so the theory basically goes like this. It takes the Hebrew letters and it attaches meanings to the six letters. Remember in uh, Hebrew, there are no uh, vowels uh, that are written. They are uh, supplied by the mind as the person reads the text. So Bereshit, B-E-R-E-S-H-I-T, form this secret message as they argue. Now, understand that uh, in Hebrew, uh, they, they take like the letter Aleph, 
and they say, well, Aleph represents God, and the letter Shin means to consume or to destroy or can mean teeth or uh, and on it kind of goes from there in terms of and they create this meaning and then they insert words within that that aren't even found in the text which you can actually manipulate several different ways to create different quote-unquote I suppose secret messages as you'd want them to appear but take the letter take the Hebrew letter sheen for instance it's just a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and unlike in the English language we have a b c in some languages they uh, assign a word for that letter that makes a sound so the Hebrew letter sheen it just makes an sh sound that's all it does and it's not a pictographic language, Hebrew. It's a phonetic language where the symbols, um, the, the, the letters, so to speak, represent different sounds. I suppose we could do the same in English, like if you took the letter T and we said, well, here's the letter T, T-E-E, and it makes the T sound like in toy. Well, we don't do it that way in English, but... It's done that way in Hebrew and Greek, but it's not like Chinese or it's not like Egyptian. Like in Chinese, for instance, uh, the letter, um, there's one particular letter that in that singular letter is the word ark. And, you know, and it looks kind of like a picture of an ark because it's a pictographic language. And Egyptian is like that too, but... Uh, Hebrew is not. It's a phonetic language, and it comes from the Phoenicians. And so Hebrew is an offshoot of the Phoenician language. Here, here's the deal. Whenever you see someone coming up with these secret messages that no one else has seen in several thousand years, it ought to raise some huge red flags. Um, this is a classic example of what we call eisegesis, where you read into the Bible some message that's not explicitly said. So it becomes an issue of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of how do we interpret the Bible. So how do we interpret the Bible? Well, God left a key within the Bible on how to interpret the Bible. So you have uh, prophets in the Old Testament interacting with other prophets, and how do they interpret those prophets in their historical, grammatical, literary meaning? And so, for instance, Daniel and Daniel 9 is reading Jeremiah 25, and he takes Daniel's, um, Daniel takes Jeremiah's statement about being in exile for 70 years. It's just at its plain literal meaning. He doesn't look for some hidden, isolated meaning that, you know, he gets by special revelation. He just reads it straightforward. Now, sometimes we call this a literal interpretation of the Bible. That might not be the best phrase to use today. Of course, today when someone says, do you literally interpret the Bible, what they're trying to do is to pin you up against the wall to say that you're some kind of idiot and nut, and the Bible should not be taken literally. Well, we don't literally interpret the Bible. We interpret it in its grammatical historical context. We understand that when there's a figure of speech, we take it as a figure of speech, and then we understand what the figure means, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. So, like, for instance, when the, the great red dragon is spoken of in the book of the Revelation, Revelation itself 
helps us to understand who the great red dragon is. In fact, in that chapter of Scripture, Satan is identified as the great red dragon. So when we have a figure of speech, we interpret the figure of speech, and then we believe it literally. But the reason people are against a plain interpretation of the Bible, which might be a better phrase than a literal interpretation, is because they don't like the implications of it. So if you say homosexuality is wrong, that transgenderism is a perversion, that extramarital sex um, is adultery, and so on, they, they call you judgmental, or you're just literally interpreting the Bible. So this has often been done, especially in the realm of prophecy, where people apply a different hermeneutic as to how to interpret the Bible. So when we see Jesus even interacting with the Old Testament, or we see the New Testament apostles interacting with the Old Testament, they just take it at its plain historical meaning. And so when people get into these hidden messages, uh, they are really distorting Scripture. They're going against the model on how to interpret the Word of God. And so we had a book years ago, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. And it sold millions of copies, and the guy became a millionaire from it. And, of course, after the date came and went, I remember Peter Jennings, who at the time was the anchor for ABC News, just mocking and making fun. And that's what they always do. Or there was a, there is a network of radio stations called Family uh, Christian Family Radio, and there was a guy by the name of Harold Camping. He, he died some years back. He lived into his early 90s, if I remember. But twice over, he had come up with some dates. One was in September of 94. The other was in October of 2011, where Jesus had to return by this particular date. And, of course, the date came and, and went. He didn't say anything initially, but I have to give the guy credit. Before he died, he's humbly acknowledged in a letter to all of his family radio listeners. You can read it online. It's probably there that his attempt to predict a date was sinful and it was wrong. No one knows the day or the hour. But people say, well, you'll know the approximate year. So like when Israel became a nation on May the 14th, 1948, some have said, well, you know, a generation, 70 years of due to strength 80. So let's add 80 years to 1948. And that brings us to 2028 and minus seven for the tribulation. So the rapture has to happen by 2021. And, you know, again, they, they create these scenarios that just are not accurate and true. I remember some people who visited our church and they asked me in the first Sunday, do you believe in the blood moon, the, the four blood moon prophecy? I said, well, there is no such prophecy. And one person got rather angry with me and they said, we're never coming back to this church. And there was a popular Texas preacher who really pushed this in the process. He, he sold tens of thousands, probably millions of books made himself richer. Uh, His so-called prophecy came and gone. The only blood moon prophecy that is uh, highlighted in Scripture is the one that happens during the tribulation right before the second coming of Christ, not the rapture, but the second coming when the moon becomes like blood red. So again, this is just a classic example of abusing the Scripture. It's using sensationalism to drive people to their websites 
There ha- There is no biblical basis for it. In fact, it goes against the tenor of Scripture on how to interpret the Scripture, and it allows the person who creates the scenario to make the Bible mean whatever they want it to say. So it's very, very dangerous. So anyway, I appreciate that question that you asked because this is kind of a hot issue again on the Internet. It's not the first time. The Bereshit prophecy has been around for 25 years, just repackaged in different ways. 843-525-1859. If you have a question in today's Bible line, Donald from Hutton, Georgia writes, I believe in God and Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and through him is the only way to heaven. I have recently been listening to your series on Revelation and have learned a lot from past sermons, but I'm having a hard time feeling a change in me. As much as I want to change, I can't. Mentally, I can't grasp it. I've been motivated by God's word, but I am stuck. I pray and I'm doubting myself and if I am truly a Christian. Well, Donald, I'm so glad that you wrote to us, and let me see if I can respond. Number one, I would highly recommend you go to the Search the Scriptures website and under resources, there's a drop-down menu or to communitybiblechurch.us, and I think it's on the home page there. And there's a message entitled, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? I highly suggest you listen to that or live stream with me when we offer it online, which we've been doing, the Meet the Pastor meetings as we often refer to them. I go through that same message because when people come to our church, on average, about half who come do not have assurance of salvation, which is a great problem to have. And so many are just like you. So it's important that you understand that there's a distinction between believing about Christ and believing in Christ. As a good Roman Catholic, I believed about Christ growing up. I would not have denied that he was God in human flesh, that he was the second member of the Trinity that he came to earth, died on the cross, was physically, literally raised from the dead, and was coming again. So I believe certain truths about Christ, but so don't the demons. The demons believe and tremble. In fact, every time you hear a demon testimony in Scripture, when you actually hear a demon speak, it's incredible. They speak truth. You are the Holy One of Israel. You're the Messiah, whatever it might be. And so... um, With that said, it's possible to believe about Christ without believing in Christ. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so the million-dollar question is, what does that really mean? Oftentimes, I'll ask a person why God should let them into heaven, and they will typically give one of four answers. Either I don't know. I don't know why God would let me into heaven. I may want to go, but I don't know what the key is that opens the door. Well, that just tells me they're lost if they don't know God's entrance requirements to get in. And I don't chide them for that because we're all born in ignorance. We're not born knowing. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how shall you call upon him in whom you have not heard? And how will you hear unless you know somebody tells you? So you have to hear the plan of salvation at some point. Some people will just give an answer of good works. They'll recite all the good things they've done. And they think that that's the key to getting in. Well, they have the wrong key. That doesn't unlock God's door. Uh, If you could be saved by your good deeds, if righteousness comes through the law, Paul writes, then Christ is dead in vain. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. Or some will give the Roman Catholic position. The Roman Catholic Church would not deny that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. 
the issue becomes what is the significance of that? And they say that that is not enough. And so in the Council of Trent, which met from 1542 to 1569, it was the response that the Roman Catholic Church had to Luther's 95 assertions or theses that he tacked to the door there in the church at Wittenberg. Uh, one of the canons, I think it's Canon 68, that I'm paraphrasing it now, but you can read actually the precise words. But it says something like this. If anyone says that a person is saved or justified, that's the word they use, if a person's justification is by grace alone and that good works do not in some way help merit that justification, they are to be anathema. So the Roman Catholic formula is, well, your your belief in, in Jesus plus the good works you do merit salvation. And that's why it's called the sin of presumption in Roman Catholicism to say you know you're saved. They say that's not even a possibility. Apart from the thief on the cross, they would say no one would have that assurance until they died. Well, that would be a logical answer and response that one might give if indeed good works help to save you. But because they don't, because they're simply the fruit of salvation, The scripture says we can know that we have eternal life. Jesus plainly said the one who believes has eternal life, not will have, but has, because eternal life is not something you get when you die. You get it the moment you believe, because eternal life, Jesus said, is knowing God in Christ whom you have sent. And that becomes a reality when you are gifted the righteousness of Christ. The one who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. And so when God credits you with that righteousness, which you receive on the basis of faith. So what's faith? Faith is taking God at his word. And so sometimes we lead people through what we call the sinner's prayer. And, uh, you know, they'll say something, Jesus, I'm a sinner, come save me, whatever, whatever words they might use to express the sentiment of their heart. And sometimes children will say it, even adults, without any meaning or definition to those words, so nothing really happens. And this is why it's important that when people say they've received Christ, we at least ask them a, a few basic questions in our day because very often people mean different things. They'll say, well, I accepted Christ. Well, the Bible never says to accept Christ. That's a man-made term. I asked a man once why God should let him to heaven because I accepted Christ. I said, well, what does that mean, Landis, for you to accept Christ? Oh, he said, well, I accept Jesus as the model that I mimic my life after. You know, a Charles Sheldon answer, what would Jesus do? He was a, a liberal who denied justification by grace alone through faith alone, and that we're saved by mimicking what Jesus would do. That's heresy. That's a different message. Uh, so the Bible never says to accept Christ or commit your life to Christ. I asked a lady once what she meant by that. She said, well, I turned over a new leaf and I started trying to go to church more faithfully and, and be a better person. The Bible never says to commit your life to Christ. It says believe in the Lord Jesus. It's a faith issue. And the faith issue is based on what God did. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so in light of the fact that the gospel that is defined in 1 Corinthians 15 is the death, burial, and the resurrection completely paid our debt that we owe God for sin, God can promise you, you call on Jesus' name and I will immediately save you. And you are saved forever and ever and ever and ever. And the question is, will you believe that? Now, when you take God at his word in a split second of time, the Bible teaches that conversion is 
instantaneous. It happens in a split second, a millisecond, when the heart reaches out in faith and trusts that what Jesus did is sufficient, that good works don't save, they don't help save, that Christ did it all. In that moment, you are born again when you bring your sin to God to be forgiven and changed. Now, some people want to bring their sin to God for forgiveness, but they don't want change. And all they're really looking for is a fire insurance policy. That's not conversion. That's not genuine faith. Uh, there is Within faith, there is an aspect of repentance. Jesus said, unless you repent, you perish. Now, you don't have to use the word repent necessarily in a gospel presentation. The one book in the New Testament that describes salvation in detail the Gospel of John, that's one of its expressed purposes for being written, that you might believe Jesus is the Christ and believing you might find life in his name. The word repent never is found. But when someone accurately presents the gospel, they are saying you come to Christ so that your sin can be forgiven and changed. And when you come on the basis of his death and resurrection, you're immediately born again and your life begins to change, not all at once. It is a process. Sanctification is a process. Uh, Justification is instantaneous. Sanctification is a process by which you grow and your life changes, and there are certain key components to growth. There are certain things that you have to understand once you are converted. And so we have a course that is being put online. It's called Basic Discipleship. It's what we offer here at Community Bible Church when people come to faith. Uh, We hope to open up before too long our ABFs again, and that class will open again. And when they come to it, they'll go to it for 45 weeks. And it walks them through the basics of the Christian faith so so they can grow. So understand assurance is a three-legged stool. Think about this for a moment. Assurance is a three-legged stool. One leg of the stool is the finished work of Christ. No one could be assured if salvation in some way, shape, or form was earned or merited, even a little, because you would never know whether what you did or the things you did, you did well enough or you did enough of. So it's not earned. So initially, salvation is based on the, the finished work. That's why you can baptize new believers immediately. The second leg of the stool is a changed life. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's a new person inside. Everything changes. Uh, and so if there's no fruit, by this you will know that my, they are my disciples. They have love for one another. By this we know we've passed out of death into life. We love the brethren. Uh, there's a change of heart towards the people of God and the things of God. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Why? Because a changed life is a byproduct of conversion. The third leg of the stool is an internal witness. The love of the Holy Spirit, Romans 5 says, has been poured out in our heart. Uh, Romans 8 says that the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I've become a child of God. And so as you begin to grow, you become aware, aware that something internally has happened. So what I would say to this caller is you need to go to communitybiblechurch.us or searchthescriptures.org and listen to the first uh, message, first series of messages in the first handout called Eternal Security and Assurance of Salvation. And there's actually a distinction between the two because there are some evangelicals who say you can be assured, but you can't be eternally secure that you can lose your salvation. That's just bad theology. 
the Bible teaches not only can you be assured, but you are also eternally secure that you can never lose something that's eternal. But I spend on that one handout five one-hour sessions. You need to listen to that. And I think if you would listen to those five messages, session one, on the Basic Discipleship Series, that this issue would be cleared up. It's either a conversion issue or a growth issue for you. And not being able to read your heart, I can at least read the Scriptures to you, and you'll be able to judge clearly for yourself. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Suzanne from Hardyville writes, My friend fears her sins are so bad, Jesus may not forgive her. I have explained Paul's comment in Romans 7, 24, 8, and also 10, 9 to 10, and so many other truths in the word about forgiveness. When I quiz her if she loves Jesus, she compassionately and firmly says, yes, she is heartbroken over her sin. Well, it's a good thing that she's heartbroken over her sin. That, that's a work of the Spirit in her life. Not necessarily conversion, but it's a work of the Spirit that has to happen before conversion. No one can come to faith in Christ apart from the preemptive work of the Spirit. Jesus said no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. And how does he draw him? Well, through the promised Spirit who was said to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so what's interesting is there was an event that took place in the life of the religious leaders known as the scribes and Pharisees, who attributed the work of Christ being done not by the Holy Spirit ministering through him, but by the devil. And Jesus showed the uh, just the illogical conclusion they had made. He said, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he makes a statement, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. He said, if someone speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So there is an unforgivable sin. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to run there because we could spend 40 minutes on it. But what I want to underscore is what Jesus said on this particular day that applies directly to this caller is that any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven you. When I go to the parallel text in Mark chapter 3 in verse 28, um, Jesus states it, In this fashion, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men in whatever blasphemies they utter. And so sometimes we just put focus on this passage of the one sin that can't be forgiven because if you uh, go against the Holy Spirit who is the key to your conversion, then you have no one else to turn to. Uh, It's one thing to reject God the Father. It's one thing, which many of the Pharisees did, because if you don't believe in him who sent me, then you're going against him. Uh, It's one thing to reject God the Son. But when you reject the final testimony, God the Holy Spirit, who opens up your heart, there's no other place to turn, and that's why it's an unforgivable sin. But I think we need to underscore what he says, that all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. So usually people fall into two categories as to why they do not become Christians. 
Some are like the Pharisees that Jesus is addressing who think they're too good to be saved. And so the message of the Sermon on the Mount is simply put, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus in that great sermon compares Pharisaical righteousness with the kind of righteousness that is necessary. They say, well, I never committed adultery. Jesus said, if you Lust in your heart after a woman, you've committed adultery. And he shows that all indeed have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So some people never become Christians because they think they're too good to be saved. But then there's another category of people who don't become Christians because they think they are too bad to be saved, that they've committed some horrible, heinous sin. You know, and I've had people in my office over the years, you know, maybe a woman who's aborted the little baby within her womb, and they think, can God ever forgive me for the heinous, wicked thing I've done? And they know in their heart of hearts that what they did was an evil. Or maybe a man who encouraged and convinced his girlfriend to do that, who participated in the killing of an innocent child. Can God ever forgive me? I don't care what kind of sin you've done. I want you to hear what what God says plainly. Don't miss it. He couldn't have said it any more clearly than he did here on this occasion when he encountered these people. Truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. All sins. God can forgive all sin. So what it will come down to is a faith issue. I had a man in my office one day, and he said, well, you don't know what I've done, Pastor. You don't know how I've lived. And I said, I actually know more about you than you realize. I know you just got out of prison a few weeks ago for manslaughter. And he said, Pastor Carl, I had a good attorney. It wasn't manslaughter. It was murder. I plan to take that man's life. Can God ever forgive me? Well, God says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What part of whoever don't you fit? Whoever means anyone. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he said, I'm the foremost. Paul was involved in the murder of God's people. Stephen and putting people in prison and having parents ripped out of their homes with crying children. And, you know, he had a burden of sin on his heart. But God can forgive anything. Whosoever will may come. And so once you understand that and that what Jesus did was sufficient, that he didn't miss any of your sins. When he died on the cross, you weren't even born. It was all in the future. He saw every word, thought, or deed you would ever commit against God, and he died for it. He bore our sin in his own body on the cross. So it's an issue of faith whether you will take God at his word, that if I call upon his name on the basis of what Jesus did, his death and resurrection the gospel, he promises to save me. And if you don't believe it at that point, you're really saying one of two things. You're saying, God, you can't, like you're weak, you're impotent, or you're saying, God, you won't. If God says, I'll do something, and you say he won't, then you're really calling God a liar, and that's the opposite of faith. Anyway, I hope that helps. I, again, I would direct this friend of yours, Suzanne, uh, to go to search the scriptures, the drop-down menu, resources, search the scriptures.org. Jesus said, search the scriptures, they're about me, and have her listen to the presentation where you'd like to know God as your friend. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we have Alberto from Savannah on line one. Good morning. What's your question? Well, good morning, Dr. Carl Rogge, Rick Forstner. Yeah, my question is, 
It's lost sinners are wicked and evil because they are the children of the devil, because the devil is the purpose to come, kill, destroy. So if the lost sinners start doing good deeds for humanity, creating good inventions, uh, medicine, or even a lost sinner is more courageous to proclaim the gospel, and he defends more on the moral values of God's word more than a lot than a Christian does, uh, and and he's more courageous to defend the gospel truth, even though he not pro- he might not profess to be a Christian, but he himself in his life demonstrates that he's more of a Christian in his lifestyle, even though he never pro- professed it. Doesn't he being reproached to the devil? The devil gets he gets angry and mad because he's not doing evil things; he's doing good deeds and he's defending the gospel of Christ. He he, he might even give money to the cause of the, the, the gospel more than a Christian who, who who proclaims to be a Christian. So basically, the the, the devil will, will be really upset because he's bringing a reproach to to the Satan's kingdom. So what do you think about that? Well, it, it's a it's a good question, Alberto, um, but it's based on uh, um, a premise that Satan only displays himself in some evil, wicked, frontal approach against God. Now, very often he does that, and that's really what we're seeing in our day. In latter times, it will be doctrines of demons, and what is happening more and more in our culture, not just here in America, but across the world, is people are believing things that we would have laughed at 20 years ago. We would have said that's the most ridiculous thing in the world for some guy to say he's become now a, a woman. We would have said that's just like, that. what's that guy's problem? And now you're considered like a bigot if you don't accept that. That's a doctrine of a demon. And so sometimes there is a straightforward frontal approach of evil that comes in the culture, but not always. Uh, remember what the Apostle Paul said. He is dealing in Second Corinthians with those who question whether or not he was a legitimate apostle. In fact, they claim to be apostles. And Paul said, um, actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. How so? The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. And so he is just reminding them that these false apostles who'd come into the Corinthian church, who said Paul was a nobody, in reality, Paul says, well, in one sense, I am a nobody. You know, I'm a sinner saved by grace, but look, I am not inferior to the most eminent apostles. I am no less than an apostle than those that were uh, initially walking with Christ when he was on the earth, and you have proof positive that I'm a genuine apostle, that they are not, and that I do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do. Well, in the prior chapter, in 2 Corinthians 11, he says in 11.13, 2 Corinthians 11.13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So Satan doesn't always come, you know, in the traditional picture that people create of him, you know, a devil with horns coming out of his mouth, a forked tail, um, you know, a a pitchfork in his uh, hand and cloven hoofs. Satan often comes and manifests himself as a glorious, beautiful angel of light. 
Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So people can do righteous deeds and for different motivations. Look, everything an unsaved man does is not necessarily evil. Lost people can do good things, but those good things cannot merit salvation. But we would hope lost people would want to do good things. In fact, that's one of the um, dimensions of ministry that the body of Christ should have in an unsaved world. If we're salt and light, light dispels darkness, salt preserves, and so we like salt preserve righteousness. But as we move to the end of the age, the church gets weaker and weaker. There's growing apostasy, and the influence of salt and light diminishes, and evil seemingly is becoming more and more progressive and more and more aggressive in its approach. Um, And so, but with that said, a lost man can do a good deed, and you would hope they did, but but when they are trying to do it to establish themselves before God, that's actually a form of rebellion. And the uh, case in point that comes to my mind would be Romans chapter 10. Paul is speaking in Romans 9, 10, and 11 about the nation of Israel. Chapter 9, he shows how Israel as a nation was elected out of all the nations on the face of the earth. In chapter 10, he shows why they rejected Christ. In chapter 11, he predicts and prophesies of their future restoration. And so 10, which deals of their rejection, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, the Jews, is for what? Is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And there's a lot of people like that today. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. I remember um, Mrs. Wachowicz. I just, I just remember Mrs. Wachowicz. She would always come up to me as a young Roman Catholic boy, and I'd go to confession on Saturday, and Mrs. Wachowicz would always be there. And she had a zeal for God, but sadly... As best I knew, looking back in hindsight, though I wasn't saved, not in accordance with knowledge. And so she jumped through all the hoops, rosaries, and, you know, all the things that really, truly committed Roman Catholics would do. She had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. There are some Muslims like that. They're zealous, but not in accordance with the truth. For not knowing, he continues, about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, That's what the Jews in Paul's day were doing. They were trying to seek, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness before God. That's why Jesus said to many of their leaders, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save the righteous, so to speak, those who think they're good enough. I I came to call sinners to repentance. That's why on another occasion, he said to these religious people, the tax collectors and prostitutes, are better candidates for the kingdom of God than you are. Well, how so? Because those people knew they were fallen, messed up, that they didn't stand a ghost of a chance unless God developed a rescue plan for them. But these self-righteous people, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And listen to the next phrase. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So the man, the woman, who's trying to work his way to heaven, who is unwilling to subject himself to God's righteousness is living in rebellion. And so I've had people over the years, some who are in ignorance. Oh, I didn't know that God's plan of salvation and God's way 
to heaven is by grace. Oh, thank God, because my heart has been so burdened and dirty and convicted, and I didn't know how I could receive this forgiveness. But I've had other people who I've taken through the plan of salvation, and they say, I, I, don't, I don't buy this. I'm going to get there by the good things I do. And that's a form of rebellion, according to Romans 10, uh, 1 through Four. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. Well, uh, you know, along the lines of the person that you just described, I think this next question from an anonymous listener in Louisville, Kentucky, fits that mold. He writes, Hi, Pastor Brogy. Recently, one of the doctors that I work with told me that I should be a Mormon because I would get benefits not only here on earth, but also in heaven, like being with my wife in eternity, etc. I remain silent and just smile. He further uh, continued to get me into talking to see what I think about that. And I said, I strongly believe in Christianity and the Bible and that I did not believe in Mormonism. I also presented a few reasons why I think they were wrong on their beliefs. Today, he gave a note, Ezekiel 37, 15 to 19, and told, we will further discuss that. Should I try to avoid any type of arguments with this person or should I try to probe him that there is only one Bible and that they are preaching a different Jesus? I don't really want to argue with him on this or any other matter, especially not on the workplace. But at the same time, it could be an opportunity to open this person's eyes. Well, no, you know, God may have brought this individual into your life for the simple reason that he needs Christ as his personal Savior. I have a brother who uh, has two homes, one in Vermont and one in Salt Lake City, Utah. And so my brother Rich spends Uh, several months of the year in Utah, and they have a ministry in reaching out to uh, lost people. And one of those couples, in fact, recently asked if uh, they were going to be in the Charleston area, if they could drive down and meet me, because they listen every week to the messages and uh, have been really encouraged. And I said, well, tell me how you came to Christ. And, well, you know, your brother was um, looking to rent our house and he asked us some questions, and at some point said, well, do you go to church anywhere? And we identified ourselves as Mormons. And, and then before he left, he said, can I pray for you? And he did. And, and he said, when my brother prayed, he just felt for the first time in his life convicted that there was something that was not right in Mormonism. So sometimes, you know, we look at certain people. We look at, say, a Saul of Tarsus, and we think, That guy is so far, he's not just neutral. I mean, he's working for the enemy. He is uh, is someone that is so opposed to the things of God that uh, he'll never become a Christian. And we write people off, and sometimes it will surprise you who will become a Christian. But take all the air out of the balloon. Uh, Sometimes you can uh, just drop or plant a seed in the heart of this physician that you're seeing just to get him to think. Like, here, here's a good question to maybe ask him. And we had to meet the pastor. This was like, oh, two and a half, three years ago. And usually pre-COVID, we'd have anywhere from 10 to 25 people who'd show up. Occasionally, we'd have a small night with five or six. But on average, around 15 people who'd come. On this particular night, no one came except four Mormon missionaries. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Rick puts out on our sign, meet the pastor, whatever. Four Mormon missionaries came. And it was really an interesting discussion. And that was a God thing. I think God was protecting some of the, because generally when we have our meet the pastor meeting, on average about 50% who come are not saved. Now, occasionally we'll have a night where it's all believers. 
We've had nights. I remember one night we had 13 people came. Every single one was lost because they come in and they answer some questions for me. And then they ask some questions of me. And so I get to see their answers. And I'm it's pretty plain when someone says I'm 20% sure. And what would you have to do to become 100 and be a better person that they're lost, that they do not understand what the plan of salvation is. But on this night, God brought four Mormon missionaries because obviously he didn't want anyone to be poisoned in that room. So I asked one of the Mormon missionaries, I said, let me, let me ask you a question. In the book of Alma, we, we talk about the book of Mormon. It's uh, kind of like our Bible. We call the Bible, but we have 66 books in it. Um, they have the book of Mormon. They have 17 books in it. And one of the books is Alma, A-L-M-A-H. And if I remember, it's Alma chapter 7. Verse 14, uh, they say that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. So the Mormon missionaries were there, and I said, this Bible here says Jesus was born in Jerusalem. And then I took them to the prophet Micah, took them to the New Testament. It says Jesus was born in Bethlehem. See, Joseph Smith wasn't too smart a guy. One, he, he plagiarized a lot of the King James Bible, and so he wove in some verses out of the King James Bible into the Book of Mormon. But in addition, again, he, he didn't know the Bible. He was deceived, and he was a deceiver. And so when we think of the city of David, we should be thinking of two places. The city of David is a term that's used to describe Bethlehem of Judea. It's also a term that's used to describe Jerusalem. And so he no doubt thought, oh, city of David, Jerusalem, Jesus was born in Jerusalem, but he didn't read very carefully. The city of David is the place which Messiah was said to come from, and indeed that the New Testament affirms he was born, but also at some point when Uh, David overthrew the Jebusites. He uh, named it Jerusalem, city of peace. And so um, it became the city of David, uh, Jerusalem. So there's two city of Davids, but because he didn't read very carefully, not only was the place where David was literally born and where the Messiah who had come from his loins would be born, but there was also the city of Jerusalem. So I said, look, your, your Bible says Jerusalem. My Bible says Bethlehem. They both can't be right. Someone's right. Someone's wrong. And one guy said, well, you know, they're kind of close to each other. I said, yeah, they're six miles apart, but all of the prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus were literally fulfilled. Well, you know, about the, no, precisely. And so there was two guys there that night that you could tell the wheels were turning and they were really thinking. And then one guy reverted to his experience well, I've had this warm feeling in my bosom, and they give the warm feeling in the bosom testimony. Is that supposed to convince us that they're right and we're wrong? So don't give up on him. Pray for him and, uh, and remind him, too. You, well, you know, in terms of rewards, the Bible actually speaks of rewards for Christians that were not saved by human merit, but those who faithfully serve Christ will not only be given the gift of eternal life in heaven, but they'll be rewarded accordingly in heaven. 
In fact, I preached that one time, and a Mormon was in the church. He said, I've never heard it. Uh, one of you Protestant preachers talk about rewards. We thought that this was unique to Mormonism. I said, no, there's the judgment of the just. You're not saved by works, but those who are saved will do good works, and some serve more faithfully than others, and they'll give an account. So again, he has taken the reward of the just, and he's made it a reward for you know, heaven or becoming a god or having a planet and all this nonsense that they teach. So keep praying for them and drop seeds here and there that maybe will knock them off kilter. All right. Betty from Beaufort writes, I'm seeking some reading or study to help me dig deeper into Paul's life and wanted to see if you had a recommendation of a book of study. I came across F.W. Farrar's work titled The Life and Work of St. Paul, but not sure if that is a solid book to read. Thank you. F.F. Bruce wrote a book on the life of Paul, so that might be um, a good resource for you. There have been, obviously, a lot of works, but F.F. Bruce, um, he certainly wrote a a classic work that might be worth your consideration. So that's where I would send Betty. All right. And then Natalie, also from Beaufort, writes, I've heard that John MacArthur is Calvinist. Could you give a brief overview of what Calvinism is? Well, um, Calvinism is a big term, and there are aspects of Calvinism that John MacArthur would totally reject and repudiate. For instance, John Calvin taught infant baptism. I've read his institutes, and when I read his section on why we should baptize infants, man, it's all so convincing as to why we should baptize believers. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, he was a Presbyterian it used to be said that every time he got up and gave an argument for infant baptism, he won more people to uh, post-conversion baptism. Uh, so there are aspects of Calvinism that John MacArthur would totally repudiate. So Calvinism is a whole system of thought. Usually today when we say, well, someone's a Calvinist, uh, people are thinking just in terms of their doctrines of salvation or the doctrine of soteriology. But it actually affects every realm. Their ecclesiology, their doctrine of the church is affected. And so, for instance, because John Calvin taught that the church, the body of Christ, was the new Israel, and God was done with the nation of Israel, that there was no future significance for the people of Israel— And he said some things that were not that great in my judgment about the people of Israel. And I'm sure he had to do some apologizing when he met the Lord in heaven. Um, But with that said, uh, you know, we're we're not the new Israel, but because he believed that, he took a lot of uh, statements that God had said uh, about Israel, and he applied them to the church, which was certainly a huge mistake. Uh, He thought that, you know, just like circumcision was done by adults, and then after that, children on the eighth day, he couldn't deny that the first generation of believers who were baptized were adults. But then he took the act of circumcision and said, well, from here on, we should baptize infants. Problem with that is numerous problems. Number one, uh, God specifically commanded Abraham, from this day forward, all of the little babies born in your house on the eighth day are to be circumcised. So God commanded that. He gave no such command like that for baptism. Obviously, circumcision was done just on males, 
and it was for the Jewish community or proselytes, where baptism is done for males and females. It's an international expression of our faith in Christ wherever we live in the world, Jew or Gentile, every tribe, tongue, and nation of believers are baptized. It's not purely a Jewish thing. Um, In the Old Testament, God had a theocracy. And so if someone was guilty of, say, blasphemy, theological heresy, uh, they were to be stoned to death. Well, there was a man, um, because, again, Calvin thought the church was the new Israel. He took a lot of the theocratic principles of the Old Testament and applied them to Geneva, where he had kind of established a, a type of Israeli theocracy. And there was a man by the name of Michael Silvetis who was guilty of a false doctrine. And so the people suggested that he be burned at the stake, and Calvin agreed that he should be burned And, you know, again, I think he was in gross error on that. And so you can take almost every realm of prophecy, whether it's eschatology. So the typical Calvinist today sees no significance of Israel being back in the land, uh, which is really sad. Um, There's no future kingdom where the Messiah will literally rule on the earth. Um, They have infant baptism instead of um, credo or post-conversion creed baptism, confessional baptism. They pr- they substitute with pedio or infant baptism. You know, every realm of theology is affected. But in terms of their soteriology, um, there was a little acrostic that came through the years that followed known as TULIP and T-U-L-I-P, T, total depravity. I believe that. Man's totally depraved. That there's nothing left in him that can merit salvation, that every aspect of man, to use Paul's summary, his eyes, his hands, his feet, his lips, every part of man has been tainted by sin. He is thoroughly fallen, and so we are by nature children of wrath. Man is totally depraved. That is certainly true, and so man cannot on his own, independently of God, come to faith. God has to do the first move. Now, I would differ with some modern-day Calvinists in this view of soteriology that God only moves in the hearts of the elect. I would say, no, he, he can move in anyone's heart, and he starts with general revelation, and it moves into specific revelation. There's some things that all men generally know about God, but then God gets more and more specific. Um, so we're just about out of time, but... Um, John MacArthur does buy into TULIP all five points, and I would not agree with him. I I would consider myself a three-point Calvinist, but not really a three-point Calvinist, a three-point Biblicist, because I would affirm the doctrine of total depravity. I would affirm perseverance of the saints, that once we're saved, we're saved forever, and I could go on, but we are out of time. Thank you for joining us today for Search the Scriptures. Mm -hmm. 